Hello, this is William Chamberlain of the Popular Materials Department welcoming you to a special edition of the Popmatic Podcast. Today, we have an interview with John Badham, the director of such films as Saturday Night Fever, Dracula, and War Games. War Games will be kicking off our Sci-Fi Summer Festival on Thursday, May 14th at 5.45 p.m. at the downtown Nashville Public Library at 615 Church Street in the auditorium. Now, let's get to the interview. What does a director do? Well, the, the job of the director is to take the script. In some cases, the director may have written the script, or in most cases, he has the script brought to him. And now he's got to decide, how are we going to realize this? What, what are things going to look like? In other words, where, where are we going to shoot this? What kind of scenery and backgrounds are we going to use? Who are the actors going to be? Let's go out and find the actors, choose them, whether they're stars or just beginning actors. So between the director, who's trying to figure out how to interpret the script, and the producer, who's helping you raise money, you're really organizing like a company. You're organizing a company, and you're staffing it with actors, with cameramen, with editors, all the people that you need to make a movie. So you need to organize your film and get everything together and now start to think, how are we going to shoot this? What kind of photographic look will we have? Now we're on the stage or we're on a a location and we're shooting and the director's job is to figure out where everybody is standing, where the actors go during the scenes, and are they performing it right the director has to be the judge of is this scene good or is it bad and if it's bad how do i help them be good you you really become in charge of everything so in a way when you look at a movie you can say that almost everything that appears on the screen is the responsibility of the director uh, even though he may not have actually done it the same way that Obama has been saying the responsibility of all of this financial crisis is my responsibility. It all comes down to me as the president. And yet you know that he can't see what everybody is doing. He can't be talking to everybody all the time. But ultimately, he's got to take responsibility for whatever shows up there, whether it's good or it's bad, and try to keep stuff in line. So the director really is is sort of the chief interpreter and using all of the actors and the designers and and cameramen and so on to achieve whatever vision he has of this script, however he's going to try to interpret it. Your mother was an actress. Your father was a general in the U.S. Army. How did they influence your career? Yeah, actually, my father was in the U.S. Army Air Force, which right after World War II became the U.S. Air Force because he was a pilot and flew planes in World War I and in World War II and actually flew jet planes. So I I guess I have very, very different kinds of influences from those two parents. I mean, my mother, who was involved in theater and radio and television her whole life, I certainly have some of those genes from her and those acting genes and theater genes. And from my father, who was actually my stepfather, I I think I learned a lot about working with people, about organizing things, and, and how to lead people, 
which is something that a military person has to know if they're if they're any good at what they do and you know his sense of discipline and you know how to how to pull things together has always been a great role model for me your sister was an actress could you tell the people listening who she is and what she's doing now if you asked her she'd say she still is an actress so my sister mary batham first appeared in the film of to kill a mockingbird she plays scout the daughter of gregory peck she was nine years old, living in Birmingham, Alabama, where my family has lived for many, many years. People came through Birmingham looking for young children to play the, the lead roles in To Kill a Mockingbird. They had been all over the United States. They had seen over 2,000 children and still hadn't found anybody that they thought could do the part. And they stopped in Birmingham at the... Town and Gown Theater, which is kind of a long-standing little theater that's been in Birmingham for many years, and that's where they met my sister and the boy who played her brother in the movie, Philip Alford, and and it was like a miracle, one-stop shopping. They got both both children in one place. After that movie, which was such a big hit and continues to be of great interest uh, even today. My, my sister has had a, a lifetime of promoting that movie. She goes at least once or twice a month to a symphony orchestra or a high school or a college or a library somewhere in the United States and will talk about the movie and read from it or be part of a symphony orchestra program where they play the music from the movie. And she's always in, in great demand. She lives in Virginia on a farm and has two children, one of whom just had her first baby, and the other is a young boy. And she's a very, very happy camper. She actually did acting after To Kill a Mockingbird in several movies, one with Robert Redford and Natalie Wood that was called This Property is Condemned. She did some television. The Twilight Zone was one of the shows that, that she did. That's the story on my sister. You started directing television in the early 1970s, and now you're back working in television. What has changed? For one thing, they spend a lot more money <laughs> than they did back then. I think when I started, the, the television shows were costing about $200,000 an episode, and, and nowadays a similar show would be about $2.5 million per episode. And they take a lot longer to shoot them nowadays because they're much more elaborate and fancier. If you go back and you look at the older shows, it's like they're in only one or two sets and the stories are much simpler. But nowadays when you're doing shows like Lost and Heroes, they have so many stories going on and they're so elaborate and they're so complicated. And the older shows... Well, the best example is watch some episodes of I Love Lucy and you get an idea of how simple the old shows were. And I Love Lucy is still playing because it is so good and they did it such a terrific job that we can watch it over and over and over again. But the audiences and the networks and the, and the sponsors always wanted a little bit more, a little bit fancier, a little bit bigger, a little bit prettier girls, a little bit funnier. And so that just gradually would run the cost up and up and up and up and, and make these shows so elaborate. 
and, and they're still scrambling to get people to watch. And, of course, back then there were only three networks. There was NBC, ABC, and CBS, and maybe public television, as opposed to now where we have how many hundreds of networks and shows and things do we have all over the place. And that was a big, 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 big difference because back then you you were only getting shows from three people. Now, if we want to make something called the Golf Channel or the Wrestling Channel or the Woodworking Channel, we can do it because we have so many channels. And there's actually some people out there that want to sit and watch the Woodworking Channel. You name an interest, and and there's probably a channel for it. You worked on the anthology series Night Gallery. You directed six episodes. Four were written by Rod Serling. What was the collaboration process like with Mr. Serling? Rod Serling was such a tremendous force in early television, a brilliant talent, great writer with a fabulous imagination. And I was so excited as a, as a very young man to be able to just be standing in the same room with him, much less working with him. The way he wrote was to sit at home or in his office, wherever, and he would dictate his stories, think up whatever he was going to say, and then he would dictate them. And if you called him and said that you had some comments on the script, he would listen to you and say, well, all right, he'd make the changes, then he would go and dictate a whole new script. And so I was actually just pleased to be able to have these wonderful stories and be able to try to tell them in ways that pleased him. For a director, one of your big audiences is the man who wrote it in the first place or the woman who wrote it and and trying to please them and and say yes that's the way i envision my story or or boy it's even better than i envision my story what i would hate to have happen is have the writer come to me and go what did you do to my story you ruined it so with somebody like like rod serling i was truly intimidated that i was going to upset him but i think he was pleased at least i never got fired You directed a television movie called Isn't It Shocking? And the cast included Lloyd Nolan, Will Gere, Edmund O'Brien, and Ruth Gordon. At the time, you were still a young director. Was it intimidating working with such seasoned veterans? Actually, you know, that's funny. I never, ever was intimidated by that group of actors. They were so professional, and they were having such a good time that I never for once felt intimidated. We were just having a delightful time up in Oregon where we were shooting, and I was thrilled to be around these wonderful actors who, you know, would always bring more to the scenes than seemed to be on the page. page of the script was very funny and very clever, and, and each actor would just bring their own personality and their own interesting interpretation, so I had a wonderful time making that film. You directed a great television movie called The Law. It starred Judd Hirsch, and it was his first starring role. How did you discover him? Well, when when you start casting, producers are always wanting to get the biggest star name they can think of. So whoever were all the big leading men back in 1974 were who they wanted. We didn't particularly care for, for any of these kind of names. The casting director that I was working for had her office in New York, and, and she sent me an American Airlines commercial and some kind of talcum powder, something called Shower to Shower. I forget what it was, but Judd Hirsch was in, in these commercials, and the producer and I looked at it and went, wow, 
this guy is really interesting. He seems like the real thing. Because what we wanted to do was not just have a known star actor playing this part. We wanted it to seem like we had gotten, you know, a real public defender. And our whole principle of casting on the movie was to try to cast people that the audiences weren't really familiar with and didn't know. And our feeling was that would make it seem more real than when you just put in, as you mentioned with Isn't It Shocking, where you had very well-known actors and Ruth Gordon and Will Gear and Alan Alda. But now we wanted to have unknown actors. When we brought Judd Hirsch to California and we did a film test with him, Everybody fell in love with him, and the network said, we don't care that nobody knows who it is. We understand what you want to do, and, and we'll go ahead with it. The law won several Emmys, including the Best Dramatic Picture of the Year for NBC, and I think it won something for, for Judd Hirsch, who has continued to wow us with his acting for these many years since. Your feature film debut was the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. You stated you read many scripts before deciding on Bingo Long. What was the attraction to that particular script? This picture is about the history of the Negro Leagues, is what they were called, the leagues where African-American players were allowed to play baseball. Uh, up until 1947, and up until 1947, these black players and the white players were segregated into different teams. One thing that was clear to anybody who knew anything about baseball, which was that the black players were extremely talented, and one of their players, Josh Gibson, had hit home runs over the third tier of Yankee Stadium when these black teams were maybe would be occasionally be allowed to play in a major league stadium. They were great, great ball players, and yet there they were separated. They played ball differently from the way the white players did because uh, the white players tended to be very, very serious about everything, and the black players tended to joke around and have fun, and it was a, it was a real treat watching them play because they actually made it kind of entertaining at the same time as it was a sports event. So all of this history appealed to me, and I understood it a lot because I grew up in Birmingham, and there was the Birmingham baseball team for the white players was the Birmingham Barons, and for the for the black audiences, there was the Birmingham Black Barons. Well, the Birmingham Black Barons are actually a really fun, fun team to watch and really good baseball players. All of this faded away in 1947 on one fateful day when Ranch Rickey, the, the head of the Brooklyn Dodgers, found a young man named Jackie Robinson and put him into the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the, the whole world changed at, at that point with this one black player being inserted into all of the major leagues. And things have never been the same since and, and have always been much better because of it. I was listening to your audio commentary on Dracula, which starred Franklin Jella. Near the end, you expressed great dissatisfaction toward the movie. If you could go back, what would you change or do differently? One thing is true. I don't think I've ever made a film that I, I couldn't go back and improve considerably as from the benefit of stepping away from it and, and, and looking and saying, oh, this I could make this better and I could make that better and I could make this more exciting or more eerie or, or, or more scary. 
certainly nowadays with the advent of what we can do with computers and 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 so on we could certainly make things visually even more exciting and more interesting than we were able to do back then where we had to be very very literal i woke up the other morning for example and and i was thinking about one particular scene in the movie between Laurence Olivier and Frank Langella where they kind of face off toward the end of the movie and Langella winds up le- leaping out a window and turning into a wolf at the same time and i just suddenly woke up and went oh i know how to shoot that here i you know almost 30 years later and suddenly i get the insight i should have had 30 years ago <laughs> on you know how to, how to do something i think that's the way directors are you're just always rewriting history or wishing you could rewrite history you worked with many great cinematographers but on dracula you worked with gilbert taylor what was he like well uh, gil taylor was just a great collaborator and one of the most inventive people to what you could do with a camera and how to achieve many many special effects in a seemingly difficult special effects in, in in a very interesting easy way and i would go to him with a problem and say you know what do you think how can we do this particular effect and he would look at me and give me the simplest answer and you'd think well why in the world didn't i think of that for example there is a scene in there where dracula comes crawling down a castle wall the outside of a castle wall because he's trying to get to a bedroom where there's there's somebody that he's going to go and bite into her neck and in the original book of dracula it described him as coming down the wall head first like a lizard and that was just the eeriest thing i had ever heard of and we wrote it in the script and we were saying now how can we do this i guess we have to build the wall of the castle and then we have to hang frank langella upside down and lower him down on wires and Gil Taylor said are you crazy no we don't do that we build a floor of the castle and we lay it flat on the ground and then we can just kind of pull him along and we'll just shoot along the wall like we're looking up imagine that you're looking up in the sky but then the wall falls flat and he's actually crawling along the flat but on the screen it'll look like he's coming straight down at us not he because you can't tell on the screen whether you're looking up or looking down if you take away certain kind of uh, visual marks and he actually he put a moon right behind Langella you can see there's a moon in the background which would kind of say to you you're looking up in the sky but the moon was only a foot off the ground this was the kind of thing that Gil Taylor was really really skilled at knowing how to do movie tricks in ways that uh, didn't take you forever to shoot it didn't cost an arm and a leg and actually were safe to do on the DVD of Whose Life Is It Anyway, a film you directed, I was listening to the audio commentary, and you said Richard Dreyfus told a funny story at John Cassavetti's memorial service, but you ran out of time on the DVD. Could you tell the story now? Richard Dreyfus is in New York, and, and Richard Dreyfus is very bad about answering the telephone and returning phone calls. But he eventually called John Cassavetti's back, and John Cassavetti said, can you come over here Sunday night? And I, we're going to read a play over here on, on Sunday night. And, and Dreyfus says, that's, that's what you called me about uh, a week ago? And he said, yeah, yeah, I want you to come over here. Richard goes over to John Cassavetti's house on Sunday night, and there's all kinds of people there. And 
John Cassavetes comes out and he's actually written this play. He's, he's carrying all kinds of, you know, yellow sheets of paper that he's been scribbling on and, and he hands parts out to different different actors. And they sit there and they read this play aloud with, with Richard reading one of the parts. And when they get all through, Richard notices that people are looking at him in a funny way and Cassavetes is looking at him in a funny way and he says, what's going on here? There's something going on. I don't know what it is. And finally, John Cassavetti's wife, Jenna Rowland, says, John, you have to tell him. You have to tell him. And John goes, oh, okay. So now it turns out that a week and a half before, John Cassavetes had been called by Blake Edwards, the director who had done all the Pink Panther movies. And he wanted Richard Dreyfuss's phone number. And John wouldn't give it to him. He said, I'll call him. And he waited to hear back from him, and he didn't hear back from Richard for a week. Well, why was Blake Edwards calling him? Blake Edwards was then making a movie called Ten with Bo Derek and not Dudley Moore, but an actor named George Siegel. And he had actually fired George Siegel because he didn't like what he was doing, and he wanted Richard Dreyfus to come in and replace him. So he has called Cassavetes to say, can you get me in touch with Dreyfus? He doesn't hear back from him. He doesn't hear back from him, so Blake Edwards puts Dudley Moore in the part. And now that becomes a big part of film history, the movie Ten with uh, Dudley Moore and and, uh, Bo Derek. So now when Richard finally calls back, John Cassavetes is too embarrassed to say why he called, because he knows that Richard missed a great opportunity. So he made up this whole idea of writing a play and actually went and wrote a play so that he could avoid having to tell Richard Dreyfus the real reason that he was calling him. In War Games, a main character is Joshua, a computer. In Short Circuit, a main character is number five, a robot. How do you get your actors to react to such inanimate objects? Well, it's actually fairly simple. Actors are trained in their, with their imagination, and as children, we're, we're used to playing when we're children with toy soldiers or dolls and treating them like they're real, and you just have to get the actor back to that state of mind where you say, this is, you know, like a, a real character inside of this computer. This robot is really real. One thing I would do when I would come on the short circuit set is when the robot would come out onto the set, the guys would would carry him out, bring him out. I would go over and say hello to him, say good morning, and talk to him just like he was a real person. And the guys that were running the robot, who actually made him move and, and provided the voice, they would play along and talk back to me. So we were really creating a real character that you could relate to right there on the set. Actually, it was very, very easy. We made them be alive, and we did the same thing with the computer. Have have the sense that uh, you know you're dealing with something that has feelings and and can react to what you're saying. In Nick of Time, you cast Johnny Depp as a mild-mannered accountant, and he's usually known for his eccentric characterizations such as Edward Scissorhands and Ed Wood. How did you come to cast him in that role? Well, see, to Johnny Depp, that was a weird casting. That was. <laughs> That was the weird part, casting him as a regular guy, because there's not much that's regular about Johnny. That was a big stretch for him, and I thought that was fun. 
to, you know, to see if him playing a regular dad who's trying to get a job as an accountant and trying to save his daughter, that that was all something that was a, a bit of a stretch and, and to get him away from a lot of the very strange characters that he likes to play. You directed a great western for HBO called The Jack Bull. It starred John Cusack, who was the executive producer, and his father, Dick Cusack, who wrote the script. Was it a hindrance or a help that this was a family project? Everybody loved Dick Cusack's script, and Dick was almost 80 years old when we made this picture. We were all so excited for him to be able to, you know, realize his dream. And so I was extremely supportive, and so was John, his son. His son was also the producer. So we never changed a word of that script without looking at Dick and asking him for his help, and he was beside me all day long, every day, making sure that his movie was coming out the way he saw it. And we wanted to have something that he would be proud of, wanted to make him proud. You wrote a book called I'll Be In My Trailer, The Creative Wars Between Directors and Actors. What was the inspiration for writing the book? Well, the hardest thing I think many directors have, one of the hardest problems they have, is working with actors. And actors actually kind of frighten a lot of directors. They're not like the camera that does what you want it to do or the lights or the microphones, those things are all mechanical things that behave the way you tell them to behave. And actors have this, have this nasty way of being human beings with their own creative opinions and you know, strong feelings about how something has got to be done. And this is you know, scary to a lot of directors, young directors especially, who are just terrified that they're, they're going to run into all this complication of people not doing what you want them to do and how do you handle them. It's something you can spend a whole lifetime learning how to do. So this book really was designed to help directors understand actors better and how to deal with them. And we went around and we talked to as many directors as would talk to us who were really good with actors, directors like Sidney Pollack and Mel Gibson and Steven Soderbergh. These wonderful directors taught me many of their skills, and I passed them along in the book so that when you get on the stage with an actor and he starts to give you a little bit of grief, maybe you have some techniques. It's sort of like super nanny for directors. You're teaching now. What are your responsibilities? I teach down at Chapman University, which is in the city of Orange, right by Disneyland, which is a nice place to be. And Chapman has a huge film school. It's actually, I'd say, has gotten to be one of the top ten film schools in the country, if not in the world, with some wonderful, wonderful brand-new facilities. I teach directing, of course, and I'm a full-tenured professor of directing there. And I teach both undergraduates and graduate students. I teach beginning directing. I teach advanced directing, intermediate, whatever the subject is that, that is needed. And I find it very exciting work to work with, you know, young people coming along who have tremendous talent. I learn from them and they learn from me. It's a wonderful kind of sharing experience. You worked with the actor Warren Oates on Blue Thunder. He's a favorite actor of mine. Can you talk about working with him? Well, he's one of my favorite actors, too. And I had, you know, admired him in Westerns for many years. And this was a, exciting to me, the possibility that we could put him in Blue Thunder playing the, the police captain who was Roy Scheider's boss. 
he he always brought this great enthusiasm and energy to things. And one day we were having trouble with the scene and technical things were getting all wrong in the background and we kept having to do things over and over again. And I walked into Warren and I said, I'm, I'm so sorry that, that we're having these problems and I hope you'll bear with us. And he said, are you kidding? I love doing this. I can do this all day long. This is this is what I live my life to do this kind of work and we can do it as many times as you want. And you thought, boy, that's a that's the spirit there. That's what you love to have with with people who are right there with you and and when you have difficulties, they just kind of dig in and and help out and bring things to the movie that you never expect. This is what you get from really good actors. People who suddenly say, well, what if I said it this way? Or something totally differently from what you dreamed about when you were reading the script. And and that's what you'd get from Warren Oates or from so many of the actors that I've been fortunate enough to work with. I would like to thank John Badham for taking time from his busy schedule to grant us this entertaining and informative interview. If you would like to hear more, please come Thursday, May 14th, 5.45 p.m., and listen to John Badham on a pre-recorded introduction for War Games at the main auditorium at the Nashville Public Library. See you at the movies!